0: This week, new pg and backstop provides for smaller equity offering, larger wildfire claims cap, Chairman Pai tweets support for public 5G auction, approach Bumblebee, file for Chapter 11. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding.
0: And I'm legal analyst Alex Brosman. Later this episode, Mark Fisher sits down with Jim Holloway, who, for those who didn't know, is also a resident energy expert, and distressed debt analyst Mark Gardner to discuss the latest from the energy patch. It's Sunday, November 24th.
1: The pg e debtors disclosed the terms of a new backstop agreement last week entered into on November 16th with certain equity holders, including Knighthead Capital Management and Abrams Capital Management, both of which are contemplated to become planned proponents. The new backstop letters include a number of significant changes, notably a reduction of the size of the equity offering to $12 billion from fourteen, and an increase in the wildfire claims cap to 25.5 billion dollars from 18.9. The new plan contemplated thereunder, quote, provides for substantially the same classification and treatment of all claims other than pre-petition wildfire claims that are not insurance subrogation claims or claims held by the public entities party to a previously disclosed support agreement with the debtors as provided in the existing plan, according to the filing. The debtors also filed a motion seeking further extension of their exclusive plan solicitation period to March 20th, 2020, from its current expiration date of November 26th. The extensions would be, quote, "...subject to the relief granted by the court pursuant to the exclusivity termination order in which Judge Dennis Montali quote, "...terminated exclusivity solely as to the TCC and the senior noteholders, so that they can proceed with their proposed plan," the filing states. Debtors argue in support of the motion that they have, quote, responded to the exigent demands of the Chapter 11 cases, as well as, quote, made substantial progress, noting that they are, quote, in the midst of estimation proceedings pending before three separate courts. Meanwhile, several California state agencies responded to the debtor's designation of more than $8.642 billion of claims for expedited estimation by U.S. District Judge James Donato, conceding that approximately $5.125 billion of their claims are sufficiently unliquidated to be estimated, including approximately $2.552 billion in claims from FEMA. Judge Donato is charged with estimating any, quote, contingent or unliquidated claims whose full adjudication on the merits via the typical bankruptcy claims process or non-bankruptcy trial would, quote, unduly delay the administration of PG&E's cases. Lastly, Following the debtor's filing of a brief last month challenging the applicability of inverse condemnation to investor-owned utilities, along with the official toward claimant's brief filed in the response, Judge Dennis Montale indicated he would take under submission the debtor's argument, stating, quote, I'll do my best to rule quickly and dispositively.
0: We also saw some incremental 5G news last week out of the Federal Communications Commission on two names, Intelsat and Legato, the former light-square. Early in the week, FCC Chairman... Ajit Pai announced via tweet that the, quote, best way forward for the C-band spectrum would be through a public auction rather than the private one proposed by Intelsat and industry group C-band alliance. Intelsat bonds traded down sharply on the news. Pai added that he was confident FCC staff would, quote, quickly conduct a public auction that will give everyone a fair chance to compete for this 5G spectrum while preserving availability of the upper 200 megahertz of the band for continued delivery of programming. In response, the CBA and Intelsat said the announcement marked a, quote, significant departure from the CBA's proposal and added Pi's announcement, quote, does not address the critical involvement of the incumbent satellite operators in executing the complex task of reconfiguring and transitioning their networks. That same day, US Senators Roger Wicker and John Thune introduced legislation which would mandate that a public auction be held for the reallocation of the midband spectrum in question, in line with Pi's tweet. Senators Wicker and Thune's legislation would require that an auction begin no later than December 31st, 2020, and that the FCC would recover gross proceeds no later than December 31st, 2022. Included in the proposed legislation is a requirement that at least 50% of the gross proceeds from an auction go to the U.S. Treasury. Slightly later this week, regarding Legato, the Secretary of Defense Mark Esper sent a letter to Pi urging the FCC not to approve Legato Network's LBAN proposal, asserting it might interfere with the GPS spectrum. Legato and its allies have contested that and urged the commission to cease its unreasonable delay and consider the proposal. Legato has been pressing the FCC for almost four years to approve its use of the 40 megahertz of the lower mid band spectrum for 5G development in the area of 1.5 to 1.6 gigahertz. Esper told PI that the L band proposal carries, quote, the potential for widespread dis- disruption and degradation of GPS services from the proposed Legato system. Per 10 USC. 2281 the secretary of defense may not agree to any restriction on the gps system proposed by the head of a department or agency of the united states outside of dod that would adversely affect the military potential of gps he said consistent with my statutory responsibilities i believe there are too many unknowns and the risks are far too great to federal operations to allow legato's proposed system to proceed he wrote In its own subsequent letter to the FCC, Legato responded that the Department of Defense had raised its concerns only, quote, behind the scenes for months, thereby avoiding having those points subject to a technical or legal review before the commission or in court. The company also said the DOD's request was not grounded in any data or information on the docket, and moreover was, quote, urging the commission to ignore its own rules, Legato said the commission should move swiftly to approve the license modification applications, as the concerns raised in the DOD's letter lack merit and only serve to further delay a proceeding that has already run unreasonably long.
1: This week saw a couple of new sub-$1 billion Chapter 11s, including Bumblebee Foods, which filed in the District of Delaware on Thursday to facilitate a sale of substantially all of their assets subject to higher offers to supplier FCF Fishery. The debtors distribute a full line of canned and pouched tuna and other fishes marketed in the United States under various brands. The bankruptcy filing follows price-fixing investigations and class-action lawsuits, including a plea deal with the DOJ. The proposed sale would be at a, quote, total implied enterprise value of up to $930.6 million. That would comprise $275 million of cash, assumption of the remaining $17 million of the DOJ price-fixing plea deal fine, and the rollover of up to $638.6 million in outstanding term loan debt. According to a press release, Bumblebee president and CEO Jan Tharp said she anticipates that the transaction will close within 60 to 90 days. FCF is the debtor's largest unsecured creditor with a trade claim of approximately $51 million. It is also, quote, by far Bumblebee's most critical vendor— as the only one from which the debtors can, in the near term, obtain the large quantity of tuna that they need to function. FCF also indirectly holds a passive minority equity interest in the debtors and, through affiliates, approximately 23% limited partnership interest in Big Catch 1 LP, a, quote, limited partnership that is three layers removed from the debtors' direct parent company. The case follows entry into a restructuring support agreement dated July 10th among Bumblebee Foods, BBFS... Several other parties, Big Catch Cayman LP, the debtor's indirect equity holders, Brookfield Principal Credit LLC as term loan agent, and each consenting lender. The RSA contemplated three potential avenues to implement a restructuring, the first two of which failed. An out-of-court transaction through entry into junior financing and settlement of civil litigation claims. An in-court transaction through a pre range Chapter 11 plan provided the debtor's entry into a junior financing arrangement and settlement of civil litigation claims. Or three... If the debtors were unable to reach a certain settlement threshold or obtain acceptable junior financing, then an in-court transaction implemented through a Section 363 sale. On Friday, the debtors had their first-day hearing at which most sought relief was granted. The dip was approved with several substantive changes. And the judge did not rule on the $51 million FCF trade claim, which she will take up on Monday. Earlier in the week, a proach a Permian-focused E&P headquartered in Fort Worth, filed for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas, with a pre-petition capital structure that included a $322 million revolver and an $85 million issue of senior notes due 2021, some $62.3 million of which are held by the Wilkes Brothers and affiliates. The company said it planned a post-petition marketing process to sell substantially all of its assets, adding that the debtors, quote, intend to continue to engage with their stakeholders in order to try to achieve a consensual restructuring transaction as soon as possible. The debtors, attributing the bankruptcy to volatile oil prices, said they had engaged with shareholders and potential strategic counterparties regarding a variety of transactions designed to reduce leverage, increase revenue, and provide liquidity, but were, quote, unable to consummate such transactions on a scale to fully counteract the effect of the long-term commodity price decline. While Judge Marvin Isger granted the debtors their requested first-day relief at a hearing on Tuesday, the judge told the parties he was, quote, "...concerned about the cumulative operating cash flow burn reflected in the budget and case controls embedded in the proposed interim cash collateral order." The interim cash collateral order was entered the following day after changes were made to the order that trimmed back case controls in favor of the secured lenders.
0: On the island of Puerto Rico, the Commonwealth's municipal governments overall showed market improvement in the wake of Hurricane Maria due mainly to short-term indicators, but have work to do to find solid financial footing over the long-term, according to the latest Municipal Fiscal Health Index for fiscal 20- 2018 published recently by open data platform ABRE Puerto Rico. The annual index uses 13 indicators with information derived from municipalities' audited financial statements. The report notes that the authors expect to see a deeper deterioration in municipal finances for the first fiscal year following Hurricane Maria's strike given the, quote, island's precarious situation. However, the numbers reflect that the municipalities, in aggregate, substantially improved their fiscal indicators. This means that a wide majority of municipalities assumed fiscal discipline in fiscal 2018, the Spanish language report reads. On Tuesday, the group of ERS-secured bondholders filed a motion renewing its call for the appointment of a trustee in the ERS Title III case, stressing that the, quote, timely appointment of a trustee is crucial. The Jones Day and and Whiten case-represented ESR bondholder group previously moved for this relief in February 2019, and as in the prior motion, the ERS bondholders asked the court to appoint them as trustees under Section 926 of the Bankruptcy Code to pursue certain avoidance claims on behalf of ERS against the Commonwealth. The renewed motion attaches a proposed adversary complaint laying out such claims. Alternatively, the ERS bondholders request that the court appoint with the bondholder's approval an independent third-party fiduciary as trustee to pursue those claims in consultation with the bondholders. The motion asserts that if the court appoints such a trustee, the court should require ERS to pay fees and expenses of the trustee and the professionals retained by the trustee. The ERS bondholders suggest that an appropriate choice would be Bettina M. White, Neither the renewed motion nor the proposed complaint identifies the dollar amount of alleged transfers subject to avoidance. A hearing on the renewed motion is scheduled for December 11th, with objections due November 26th.
1: Other top stories last week were California Resources taps Perella Weinberg as financial advisor. Black Diamond files adversary complaint seeking declaration 2018 Murray refinancing transaction invalid. Crop Management expresses desire to make progress on global opioid settlement ahead of New York trial, potential settlement unique to its legal entity structure.
0: Jim's out, so why don't you read the week ahead, Connor?
1: Okay, Alex. Uh, welcome to Thanksgiving week. Uh, it'll be something of a truncated week uh, with little action on Thursday and Friday, as you might expect. Uh, the days leading up to Thanksgiving, however, bring a number of noteworthy hearings uh, and third quarter results as well will start to trickle in. Kicking things off on Monday, November 25th, Judge Alan Koscik will oversee a hearing in the First Energy Solutions case on motions filed by parties who have appealed the plan confirmation order and who seek certification of the confirmation order for direct appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. The appellants seeking direct appeal include the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, and the Ohio Valley Electric Corporation. Also, the Windstream debtors head back to court for another hearing on Monday related to the Unity Master Lease Dispute. The debtors are asking the court to grant their motion to stay the, quote, purported application of their deadline to either assume or reject their Master Lease Agreement with Unity. The deadline doesn't apply, Windstream says, because the Master Lease Arrangement is not a true lease of real property. Unity, as you might expect, opposes the stay motion. Also on Monday, Navios Maritime Holdings Inc.'s third-quarter earnings release and conference call are scheduled for the morning. On Tuesday, November 26th, we'll be tuning in for Al Gecko Scotsman's third-quarter earnings call in the morning and, later in the day, a status conference on the Verity Health debtor's disclosure statement. The court has asked the debtors to provide an update at the conference on the status of the closing of the sale of the debtors' remaining four hospitals to strategic global management. Heading into the afternoon, the latest chapter of the Marbo-McKinsey dispute unfolds in a status conference before Judge David Jones in the Westmoreland Coal case. At a hearing in late October, Judge Jones called the dispute an, quote, ultimate career ender for somebody. An omnibus hearing in the Sanchez Energy cases is also on Tuesday's schedule. Wednesday, the day before Turkey Day, brings us a number of deadlines in closely watched cases, including four a report by the mediation team in the Puerto Rico Title III cases, objections to the disclosure statement and plan in Cloud Peak Energy, second-day relief objections for Arsenal Energy, DS objections for Philadelphia Energy Solutions, and lastly, objections to the motion to appoint an official retiree committee in Murray Energy. Wishing a happy and healthy Thanksgiving to you, dear listeners, and to my friend Jim Holloway, who will be back next week and on our next segment, coming up now. Thanks, Connor. Now here's Mark, Jim, and Mark to talk energy.
2: Thanks, Connor. So it's been definitely been a um, wild uh, year in the land of um, energy, EMP, EMP services, um, you name it, anything uh, related to um, to the energy sector. So we thought it would be a good time. To just take stock, um, look at what's um, what what's happened, uh, how it affects uh, all the different subsectors, and um, you know potentially talk about uh, some some names here too. So you know, as always, uh, got our uh, resident energy expert Jim Holloway all the way in from um, from Houston to talk about what's been going on, and also um, financial analyst uh, Mark Gardner is with us as well uh, to talk about um, some names in particular. So. Jim uh, let's let's kick it off. Uh, why don't you tell us what's been going on in, uh, in energy land this year?
3: Thanks, Mark. Um, yeah, it certainly has been an interesting year, and I think far more interesting than most of the people that work in it would like. Uh, as we have as we mentioned before, if you put a short on the equity of most E and P's around the start of the year, then you know your ball should be having you know be giving you a nice set of steak knives for Christmas. Uh, and the biggest theme is, of course, again the astonishing productivity of U.S. shale, which has pretty much glutted the world market with hydrocarbons. Uh, Interestingly, the EIA yesterday once again increased its crude oil production forecast for the United States. They now see production increasing to 12.3 million barrels a day in 2019 from 11 million barrels a day last year. And this is primarily due to the Permian. And they see that increasing even more in 2020. Um, there's a lot more capacity to move barrels out from the Waha Hub, which is close a price differential between Midland and WTI. And although the flaring of associated gas is at a record in the Permian, the differential there is also coming in. Uh, we have the Gulf Coast Express Pipeline coming on last month, and there's two more in the works. That's um, having the effect that natural gas is coming into the Gulf Coast, like I said, and so that's impacting production in the Hainesville and I think pricing in the Marcellus, too. Uh, another thing thing that's kind of interesting in the EIA report, they noted that U.S. crude refineries have cut their processing capacity by about 100, billion bar- 100 million barrels this year, I think due to a lot to weaker demand from overseas. And the EIA's forecast for WTI is still in the mid-50s, and I think the market is expecting that to fall towards 50 before it goes back to 60. And probably with natural gas, it's probably going to hit a 210 before it hits 290, I think think and I think the larger issue really is that the financing model has not really evolved at the same pace as the extraction techniques. Um, the good old boys with the toolboxes, I guess you could say, are way ahead of the bankers in oil field innovation. I mean, your, your management—this is what the bank or pitches it's what you do, and it's not much different from how your dad or your granddad did it. And it's proven not to work. And we've seen a number of bankruptcies so far this year: Sanchez, E.M.P., Alta Mason, Approach Resources, and I think it's. Interesting interesting that the last two went right into a sale process you really have to wonder how much interest there is in being involved in additional equitizing situations and I think something else that compounds the problem is the rise of ESG requirements which is precluding a lot of funds from investing in oil and gas names.
2: So that's really interesting Jim and I know that you're always on the uh, the, the phone listening to, um, to to these companies speak uh, as long as others uh, along with others in the, the industry so since we just completed third quarter earnings and you talked about that um, that uh, that interaction between between Wall Street and um, the uh, the land of energy. Um, you know, why don't why don't you tell us what happened during what what, what did operators say on these conference calls to investors?
3: Yeah, I, I think that the main message that the management's V and P companies wanted to deliver to investors on the calls was that we hear you loud and clear that you would like us to maintain our spending within cash flow and that you would like us to grow free cash flow over production. And um, I think that it's definitely true that the mar- that the uh, the, that the managements and companies are hearing them on the CapEx front our friends at Rystad Energy which is a consultancy in Norway analyzed the third quarter 2019 earnings results of a bunch of the shale operators and found that so far including the third quarter companies have decreased their CapEx by about 1% relative to the original capital budget so we're not seeing a huge amount of outspend At the same time however the shale operators are on track to grow their 2019 production by over 16 percent over 2018, which just shows how much, um, how impressive their execution, their efficiency has gotten, and how they're producing more with, I guess, the same amount of spending. A couple of other things, it's uh, been noted that the rig count has been dropping, and the managements have noted that, but they're also pointing out that laterals are on the whole longer, meaning that you can get more production out of a given well. There are some questions out there about how many more, how much more efficiency can be squeezed out. And on the other hand, and while there has been a lot of negativity and concern over the Permian, this probably started last year or the year before. Particularly as some of the more optimistic spacing assumptions didn't really work out, I think uh, the crews are really applying what works and getting to better assessments of what a given well can deliver. And some of the operators in the Permian have been getting really good results out of wells at 1,000 foot or 1,500 1, foot space, and compared with uh, 500 feet or 750 feet. And I think it's true that the stronger companies are getting to be stronger. Right now, ExxonMobil commands some 20% of the rig fleet in the Permian, and I think has been adding rigs, even while you're seeing a drop-off in demand from the smaller players. And Diamondback, one of the dominant Permian players, got upgraded to investment grade over the third quarter and got a three-part, three part $3 billion deal done in the IG bond market at very good pricing. Uh, of course, the other side of that is the market is more or less closed for anybody else, and I think Manning realize that particularly a lot tougher for gas weighted operators so i think there's just hopes that um the market will reopen again sometime maybe in the spring. Uh, another thing on the good side, I think that uh, the got through the redetermination season in fairly good shape. I guess the next big issue is going to be budget season. We should start seeing announcements, announcements related to that in mid-December. Um, and I think, again, management's made it known that what they want to see is free cash flow, and management teams are have indicated that they heard, so it'll be interesting to see how the budgets shake out. So, Jim, with um, you know, with, with with a lot of the volatility
2: uh, in in the market right now, and um, you know, prices where uh, prices are where they are, uh, have you seen any hint of consolidation?
3: Well, we saw some fairly large deals last year. I think uh, Diamondback and Cimarex were both involved, among some others. Um, you know, right now it's it's very interesting. There was, of course, the report last week that uh, Jerry Jones, the legendary Texas billionaire oil man who owns the Cowboys and who's put a lot of into Comstock, was interested in buying Chesapeake's Hainesville acreage. Um, you know, it's interesting, Chesapeake, back in the Aubrey McClendon days, really put the play on the map, and they're still the biggest holder of acreage there. Of course it being gas play they're not running any rigs there they're more focused on the brazos Valley which is north of here um You know, could such a deal get done? It would be very tough, if not impossible, to get it financed in the bond market right now. Uh, I really don't know if uh, Mr. Jones is in the habit of writing checks that big. And I think there are also some uh, takeaway contract issues related to Chesapeake's um, Chesapeake's acreage there. Uh, You know, it it would be kind of tough, I think. That said, the sector is so disliked and so beaten up that at some point you have to figure, you have to hope, I guess— that the deep value guys will come back in. There's been a lot of people talking about a recent interview with Sam Zell where he mentioned he was starting to take a look at E and P's.
2: Yeah, and, and um, you know, you look at the operators that the, the companies, the people that run the companies as well. You know, they still do want to. Um, Drill and produce, uh, you know, more. They, they of course have to uh, work with their um, work with their investors and work with the financial markets. But um, they're, you know, I'm I'm sure that they are trying to figure out ways to to get cash so they can continue to uh, to build out their property. So, you know, Mark, I wanted to bring you in um, because um, some of these companies have. Uh, Done some interesting sort of uh, financing to uh, to bring in new cash. One of them is California Resources, which has relied on outside capital and dropped assets, I guess, into uh, to joint ventures. Right,
4: right. Uh, so the alter- alternative forms of financing um, that they have used to kind of continue to develop certain fields um, has been uh, their joint ventures. The most recent one they announced uh, was its Alpine JV back in July. So uh, Alpine is a joint venture between subsidiaries of Colony Capital and Equity Group Investments. Um, In that JV, Alpine committed to invest $320 million um, and up to a a total investment that that could be increased to $500. Um, And the initial commitment is supposed to cover uh, development opportunities and is intended to be invested over about three years. Um, And in that JV, which is kind of Similar to the structure of prior JVs that uh, California Resources has done, uh, the the JV commits to fund 100% of the development wells, and they earn uh, 90% working interest, whereas California Resources will have a 10% uh, working interest, and then that reverts to um, a higher percentage. In this case, for, Al- for the Alpine JV, it would be to 82.5% um, once Alpine... Uh, Receives like an an agreed-upon return So uh, this JV is similar to prior JVs that CRC has done However, uh, two JV structures that stand out are the Aries JV and the Benefit Street Partners JV Which are uh, both consolidated in California resources results Uh, So in in February 2017 CRC entered into the joint venture with Benefit Street, uh, where Benefit Street would contribute up to $250 million over two years in exchange for a preferred interest in the JV. Uh, Benefit Street is entitled to preferential distributions, and if it receives cash distributions equal to a predetermined threshold, um, that preferred interest is automatically redeemed in full with no additional payment. Uh, Another JV that also has a preferred interest is the Aries JV, which was done in February of 2018, and that differs from the other JVs that California Resources has uh, has done uh, in the sense that uh, California Resources contributed its infrastructure assets, and uh, it was not based on the premise of exploring or developing oil and gas properties uh, as it has done with the other JVs. So uh, through ECR corporate holdings uh, an Aries portfolio company uh, Aries owns hundred percent of the 750 million class B preferred interest in addition to other common interests in that JV Um, As the the preferred interest requires the JV to make monthly distributions to ECR based on its 750 million dollar investment at a 13 and half percent annual rate the JV is allowed to defer distributions of 4% from the 13.5% annual rate for the first three years. And then uh, the deferred distributions, though, accrue interest at a 13.5% uh, per year rate. And they are the deferred distributions are required to be paid over the two years following the deferral period. Uh, so a recent publication we did this week. Goes into further detail about these preferred distributions. Um, we do mention talk about kind of like the the deferral of the distributions that California has been uh, doing over the last uh, several quarters regarding the Ares preferred distribution, and we also mention the effect uh, these these uh, have on cash flows. Um, so California Resources does not disclose EBITDA or free cash flow generation at its JVs which could make CRC's free cash flow higher or lower when removing certain cash flows associated with the non-controlling interest in its JVs? Thanks, Mark.
2: Um, so for anyone that wants to look at that report um, definitely reach out to your salesperson uh, to get that report and also I point people to the work that uh, Jim and Mark have done on Sanchez Energy too which also had um, a pretty big um, joint venture and um, separate financing separate preferred uh, along with that and I have no idea what's going to happen to to California resources Um, but it's uh, you know it could be good to look at how that um how that entity is playing out currently, given the stage that Sanchez uh, is in. So, uh, you know, Jim, um, you know, I guess we talked a lot about the EMPs. Uh, so let's look at uh, some of the other sectors that touch uh, the EMPs, uh, namely oil field uh, services. I know that you monitor all those companies as well. So, you know, what have they been uh, saying and any shifts that you're seeing going on in that subsector?
3: Uh, yeah, sure, Mark. Um, you know, the, the companies that can, that, that are exposed to offshore, are, you know, shifting their capex to offshore and really singing the praises of offshore. Uh, you see all that from Halbert and Schlumberger, and one of the reasons that is, is because it's not looking that great in the onshore side. You know, we, of course, got to the, the budget exhaustion season in, in the third quarter, and um, it seemed to have gotten a little sooner and it seems to be a little bit more abrupt than a lot of people thought it would be. So um, there's been just a general slowdown in the onshore. I think that is the the main kind of theme and everybody is just looking to I think ride it out until the budget seasons begin in the first quarter and the spending taps are loosened.
2: Yeah, so let's stick with some of these large companies because they've uh, you know made some interesting comments on any, some constraints that they might have and how they plan to um, to ride things out, how have they been managing their fleets?
3: Yeah, that's one of the more interesting things. There was a lot of discussion just among a, among people in the oil field last year about if you want if you were bringing a new frac spread online, whether that would be a replacement for something or whether that would be an incremental addition to the fleet. There was a lot of concern that people didn't want to get to an overcapacity like you had in 2014. Well, it seems some of the bigger operators have decided that we are capacity and that some has to be taken out. So you saw Halbert and Schlumberger RPC, which owns um, Cut Energy Services. They took a substantial amount of frack horsepower out of the fleet. Um, I think also there might have been a few other ones in, there may also have been some of the high spec rigs coming down and this is just a response to to slower demand on the one hand people are a lot more efficient in how they drill and complete the wells, so you don't really need your frack spread on the site for as long as you used to you don't need the drilling thing on site as long as you used to and we're also starting to see some signs i hear anecdotally that some of the uh, day rates for the more leading edge um, highest spec onshore drills are started dr- drilling units are starting to come down so it's going to be a very easy a very interesting fourth quarter and first quarter i think for the service companies great and we'll definitely be watching uh, so
2: jim thank you very much for for that review mark uh, thank you too and connor back to you
1: thank you mark and thank you listener for tuning into another weekly review as always find all of our podcasts on the site's media page itunes and soundcloud we will be off next weekend for the holiday weekend. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. This has been The Week in Reorg,
3: and I'm Connor Skelting.